Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we ask that you'd fill us again with your Holy Spirit, that we might hear your voice speaking to our hearts this morning. Amen. So the question this morning, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is what does God want? Is it not coming through? Is it not? Just, just a shade louder. Is, it, is, is that, is that, is that better? So, so okay, is it because you've got the fan on? Okay, is that better now? Fantastic, we shall continue. <laughs> so the question is, what, what is it that God wants? We're all here on a Sunday. Um, so he's got us up out of bed. Um, we might give to the church and support the work. We might have um, a role uh, in the service um, to make it happen, whether it's preaching or reading the Bible or setting things up or looking off the computer. What is it that God wants? Now, I've got to say, I feel really bad for Peter. Because you know how every so often you do something embarrassing and you think, oh, I'm so glad no one else saw that. It's like you trip on the side of the road, you catch yourself, but you've, kind of, you've stumbled three feet forward. And it, sometimes you've, you know, there's a big bus stop of people looking at you. Other times, no one's around. It's like, that's okay. My dignity's still intact. On we go. Everything Peter does that's awkward, every time he puts his foot in his mouth, someone is there taking notes, saying, oh yeah, we better record that, we better let people know that that happened um, 2,000 years down the line. So here you have Peter taking, not all his disciples, just these three, just Peter, James and John, uh, to this mountain to pray. And... As he's praying, the prince's face is transformed, his clothes become dazzling white. There is, it's called the transfiguration, this sense of Jesus being transformed in that moment to something like his heavenly glory. And as he is there, uh, Moses and Elijah appear and begin talking to him. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. Now, when it says... Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. You can read that sentence a few different ways. He either he took them with him so they could all pray together on the mountain, or he took Peter and James up on the mountain as he was going to pray. It's, I'm not sure if this is the English or the Greek that isn't particularly clear, but clearly Peter and James and John aren't doing a lot of praying. They're fast asleep, and when they wake up, there is Jesus, God, Messiah, shining with these two other figures who somehow Peter was able to immediately identify as being Moses and Elijah and what does Peter do? He's like well Jesus brought us here so it must have been for a reason there must be something I have to do what do we do? And, 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 Lord it's so good you brought us here we'll, we'll, how about we'll put up three tents we'll, we'll do one for you one for Elijah and one for Moses. And then everyone can, can kind of have a rest and we'll kind of get a handle on what's actually going on. And as Peter is babbling, this cloud overshadows them. And this, as, as they rightly 
uh, are terrified, a voice from the cloud says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finishes, Jesus is there all alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. How would you talk about that? How would you explain what you've seen? How would you discuss it in a way which didn't make you sound like you'd lost every single one of your marbles? So they don't. But it raises the question, why did Jesus take them up there? What's the point? They're not telling anyone else what they've seen. He doesn't want them to do anything up there. What, what's going on? And so what you have is Jesus taking the three people he trusts the most. Peter, James and John. Uh, the ones who, when, whenever he's ministering, he, he's raising Jairus' daughter. And he doesn't bring everyone in with him. He brings Peter, James and John. They're the ones that he trusts, that he talks to the most. That he shares a little bit more of who he is with. He takes them up the mountain. And even though they then fall asleep, as they will do again in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is transformed into something like who he really is. And if they have eyes to see it, they might grasp that little bit more. It's like, this is who we're following. This is not just a teacher. This is not just a rabbi like the others. This is God. This is God shining in all his glory, authorised and empowered by the voice of heaven from out of the cloud. Now, as if they go on and everything else happens, they've not shared this with anyone, but they're not going to forget it, are they? And as things happen, they happen in the light of Peter, James and John having a better understanding of who Jesus is. Now, um, I'm really impressed with different translations talk about Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus differently. Uh, but the Greek word for what they're discussing is exodus which is, is put here, they speak about his exodus from this world. Uh, in the Greek it says, they talked with him about his exodus. And so you look at that, you go, okay, so Peter James John, they've seen Moses talking to Jesus. What is Moses famous for? He led the exodus. He took a people who were in slavery and empowered by God, he led them out and to the promised land. Jesus is about to do the same thing. This is Jesus' exodus, where by his death on the cross, he breaks his people out of slavery and drags them through into the promised land. But what's the promised land? We have a look. It's been a, it was a joy when we first arrived, to support Ajay with his studies, because he was at St Melita's training before he got ordained deacon. And one of the assignments he had to do was about, um, biblically, should Israel, is an Israeli state justified by the Bible? There's something about that Israel being for the Israelites uh, today. 
discuss. And so he was looking through the Old Testament promises and all of these things. And it was really interesting watching him grapple with um, the different politics. Because there were, for some people, it's like, no, God promised a promised land. It's that bit. And it's described in the Old Testament as being from up here to across there to down there. And that all belongs to Israel. Therefore, the Palestinians... Um, some of whom are Christian, but that's by the by. They don't belong there. It's for Israel. That's their place. It's the promised land. And in Revelation it talks about Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. Um, so this is it's the promised land. How can you not support the promised land? And yet, in 2 Corinthians, in Paul, Paul doesn't write about the land. He doesn't write about the geography he writes about the veil. He writes about the veil being taken away. Now, the story of the Old Testament is a story of the holiness of God and the general unholiness of the people of Israel. There are so many stories going back to Moses going up the mountain to receive the law and there being a cloud and thunder and lightning covering everything. So the people of Israel were terrified. And when Moses didn't come straight back down, they get Aaron to make a golden calf because it's like, look, just give us something we can worship. We need to worship something. And what's up there is way too scary. Let's do something else. Then the tablets were put into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was carried around with the people of Israel. And when someone, they're crossing some water and someone stumbles, someone reaches out and just steadies it with a hand. They're killed. How dare you lay hands on the presence of God? He's too holy, you can't do this. The temple is built with its outer court for Gentiles. There's still fairly outer court for women. The court for, for men. The court for priests. And then the Holy of Holies, that one priest can go into once a year where the presence of God dwells. And we know that on the day of the crucifixion, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from everything else was torn from top to bottom. But for the Jews, God is separate. God is so holy that you just... You don't go there. You can't. To touch him is death. To look on him is death. Moses, who is so close to God, is allowed to view the back of God's glory as he passes by. Because if he looked on him, he would die. And we have this um, image that as Moses went to the tent of meeting, the place where the ark was, and prayed and talked to God, his face began to shine with the glory of God. So that when he left the tent, everyone else went, okay, stop, stop. We, you're scaring us because something that's not human is going on, something supernatural. Just cover your face up. So Moses wears a veil to protect other people from seeing how close he is to God. He wears a veil. And so he sees them through it. And so Paul says... Everyone, 
the whole Jewish community, they see God through a veil. The law says, you are not worthy, stay that side, God is this side. And he says, as people believe in Jesus, the veil is taken away. And we are able to come into the presence of the most holy God. The God that people are destroyed in the Old Testament for taking liberties with. We are invited into that place. One person a year is allowed in all the way through the Old Testament. Now suddenly in your own living room. You can stand in the presence of the most holy God. And all it takes is faith. Now again, I'll go back to our first question. Why? Why are we allowed to come into the presence of God? Why are we brought into this place where we can be changed like Moses was changed, where something of God's glory can be reflected from us? Why would he do that? Is it so that we can preach outside Barclays Bank or on the high street? Hand out tracts and tell other people the good news? Is it so we give all our money to charity uh, and support good causes the world over? God's heart is that we know him. That we are in relationship with him. That we love him. Of course... What goes with that is if we stand in God's presence, if we spend time with him, we become aware of all the things that break his heart. We become aware as we talk to our friends of the fact they don't have this access to our God. They, don't, they can't just come to him in all the, all the hurt and pain and suffering that they're experiencing. So why would we not share that? Why would we not say do you know what? God really does love you, even if it doesn't feel like that right now. When there's, charity, when there's need, when people are struggling, why would we not donate? Why would we not give? Because we stand in God's presence. We're aware that he is the creator of everything. He owns everything. And he has promised to give us our daily bread, day by day by day by day. So we can give. Because we can trust him to give us what we need. Now the Old Testament has all these stories of separation and God being here and holy and us being here and the other side of the veil. Go back further. Go back to Eden. How did God start with Adam and Eve? He walked with them in the cool of the evening in the garden he had made for them. That's the image that we start with, this relationship with God, where you walk together, taking the air, chewing over the events of the day, working out what you're going to do with that um, slightly dodgy patch there where the artichoke, artichokes have taken root and you can't shift them. But God invites us into relationship, which means that we can see who he is. Like Peter, James and John, see who Jesus is. Don't know what to do with it. But actually, 
There's nothing for them to do with it. But that knowledge will change the, how they react to the events that will come as we lead up to Holy Week and Easter. And after Easter and on to Pentecost. They needed to know who God was. So for us, we have this amazing privilege as we worship together, as we pray in our homes, as we meet with friends. For those who believe, the veil has been taken away. And God brings himself so close to us. Scandalously close. There's no reason why he should. And actually, for most of us, we think, well, he shouldn't. So we don't go close to him because, you know, he should know better than to come close to us. His heart is that we are close to him, that we know he loves us, that we love him in return. So we're about, on Wednesday, it's Ash Wednesday, we begin Lent. This period of fasting, of testing, of trial. I'd suggest to you that you seek out time and space to be with God through Lent. Not specifically that you do anything or that you don't do anything, but you take a moment of quiet, you find a comfortable chair, and you say, here I am, Lord. And just sit. If you don't open your mouth, then you're ahead of Peter. God's not looking to catch you out. He's not looking to show you how bad you are. He knows the things you've done wrong. That's why we do confession each week. He wants you to know that you're loved. And he wants you to know who he is. That he is the one who can do away with sin and guilt and shame and fear that you focus on him, not on yourself. Lent, Ali was showing me um, an article, well, not an article, it was a Facebook comment from someone who was a tutor at our college. And they've just done an account of meeting with a group of Iranian Christians who were Muslims. And they were trying to get their head around Lent. And they went, right, so... People fast. It's like, yeah, Lent, Lent is our fast. Like you have Ramadan, we have Lent. It's like, oh, okay, so, so what do people fast? Is it like, um, you know, you don't eat during the day? It's like, oh, no, 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 you can eat, you know, you eat when you want. It's like, okay. So do you fast from, like, meat and dairy and things? No, no. What, what, what do people fast from? And our poor went, well, coffee and chocolate, mostly. <laughs> And she said there were five, five minutes of laughter as all these um, Muslim converts are going, this is a fantastic religion. I'm going to fast from avocados. Lent <laughs> <laughs> isn't about that we suffer, but it's that we draw close to God. And actually, um, our, when we do our, we talked about our vision of values, standing on the rock of Jesus, standing on what, who Jesus is to us, Shining his light to all we need. We said, actually, if we're going to do that, we need to be focused on Jesus. 
We need to be loving to other people. And we need to be resilient. Now, resilient is about the fact that actually lots of things come and they knock us and they hurt us and they distract us. And we can end up looking at ourselves, looking at our problems, looking at all the things that are happening. And Jesus says, look at me. Look at who I am. See my face shining like the sun because I am God and I am for you. I'm not going to ask you what you want to give up for Lent, what you want to do for Lent. But I would encourage you to seek out the presence of God. To sit and invite him to come close to you, to constantly draw close to him. And not do anything. Not try and build tents to kind of preserve the moment. Just sit and be. And know that what God's will for Peter, James and John and for us this is my son my chosen one listen to him let's pray dear Lord thank you for your graciousness and your gentleness both to Peter and James and John and to us thank you that you are our Lord and our God. And that you have opened the way to the Father. That we are able to stand in your presence because you have done away with our sin and our guilt and our shame. Would you give us faith to believe in you, to trust that you have made us worthy to stand in the presence of the Most Holy One. And give us grace day by day to seek you out and to spend time with you. We ask this, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen. Amen.